Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. The party goes on. Or does it? Are we back to normal? Or is this just the calm before the storm, before things go really crazy? I sat down at Money 2020 in Las Vegas with Nick Chandy, CEO and co-founder of Forward AI, which was built to solve small business cash flow problems. It's difficult for small businesses to share their accounting data with banks and other financial players to improve access and speed to secure financing. Nick talks about Forward AI's API that enables an easy way to share data and bridge a gap for financial institutions, lenders, and other fintechs to help SMBs stay financially healthy. But first, Jason kicks this episode off by diving into one of his favorite topics, interchange. In a conversation with Jason McCullough, editor of Fintech Business Weekly. Listen as the two Jasons discuss payments, rewards, mobile wallets, and the rise of embedded finance. All right, Vegas, the party goes on, Jason. Does it feel like the, the, the sentiment was, oh, the party's over. Doesn't feel like the party's over. But is the party over? It's a, it's a different feeling here at Money 2020. Uh, the vibe is different than last year. Uh, better in the sense that, you know, there's no COVID, allegedly. Um, but funding-wise, maybe it's a little more temperate than it has been in years past. That's one thing that struck me is you no longer see, like, the, you know, mass people from a single company, like the entourage of Chase and the PayPal's, mm-hmm. right, where it's like, holy hell, how many people do you guys have here? And it seems, even though it's like 11,000, maybe 12,000 mm-hmm. registrants, it also seems not quite as crowded in not quite the same vibe that it's been in the past. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. It just feels a little bit different. I think it's because there are a lot fewer crypto people here. Last year, it felt like a fallen third of the exhibitors were sort of crypto or crypto adjacent. Definitely a lower proportion from uh, that segment this year. So we're not getting the, oh, I just want a vibe here? Uh, fewer vibes, fewer crypto millionaires, maybe. Okay. That could be. Now, one of the things that I do think is different is while there still are some of the big parties, um, it does seem much more business focused than it has been in the past. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that reflects like the broader theme of uh, reality has struck. You know, it's harder to raise money. Unit economics matter. Discipline matters. And I think maybe people are a little... uh, reflecting that in their approach to the conference. Well, I want to disagree slightly in that it's it's not harder to raise money. It's back to normal in yeah, raising money. Yeah. <laughs> that is the right way to put it. Yeah. Right. And so when you see all of this, oh, the you know, the good times are over, it's like, no, reality has come back. Right. I, I think your unit economics you know, piece is a really important one. But the uh, the FT partners deck that goes out every month with like number of deals and dollars raised. Uh, 
you know, somebody posted it and said like, fintech funding, you know, crashes dramatically. And it's like, actually, no, if you look far enough back, it's just a reversion to the mean. It's what it was before sort of 2020, 2021, you know, when it went crazy. I was going to say, you don't even actually have to look that far back. Yeah. I know the chart you're talking yeah. about is like, you go back three years yeah. and you draw the line. You're like, oh, we're back on the line. Yeah. We're back where it was before everyone went crazy. Yeah. Well, in, so this thesis of, you know, everything is a fintech and fintech can change the world. There still is a bit of that vibe. How are you feeling? Like when you look at the marketplace, are you optimistic about fintech? I'm going to use my classic talking point here, which is there are uh, companies that do financial services and happen to use technology. And then there are fintechs that are technology companies that sell to financial services companies. So if I sort of, or if you want to use the picks and shovels metaphor, uh, you know, if I'm thinking broadly about the space, you know, neither of these are going away. Uh, I think that the more consumer-oriented fintechs, so the ones that are financial services that use technology, are probably in for more pain than the uh, quote-unquote picks and shovels companies that may have a broader set of customers they can sell to in, you know, in fintech companies, but also establishment banking and other sectors. So call this a out too late in Vegas, us huddled in a corner recording this, jaded. Something I've been wrestling with the last couple of weeks is I feel like fintech has become too much of its own bubble and we're drinking too much of our own Kool-Aid in terms of the impact that we're actually delivering. And while it's interesting that now Chase is allowing, you know, two-day early access you know, to wages and copying the fintechs, you know, I, I think of something Shamir Karkal said uh, two years ago to me. It's like, when we look at it, it's like, really, you know, we're 2008 Perk Street, 2010 for them. It's simple. This is how far we've come. And I feel like technologists are taking this very interesting view of, oh, here's the problems we're solving, but are we really solving really meaningful problems in new ways as fast as we could? That is a loaded question. <laughs> if, <laughs> if ever, if ever Disclosure for any of Jason's clients or people he writes on. If uh, ever I had heard one. Uh, I mean, I think to your point about Chase, you know, uh, huge establishment banks don't need to be on the cutting edge of innovation. They can, in a sense, outsource that, let players like Chime and Vero and Current and Cash App, you know, test these things, see what consumers will respond to, and then just copy them. And so I think, you know, in aggregate, has FinTech and also, you know, regulators and legislators pushed establishment financial services companies to improve some of their product offerings. So things like two-day early direct deposit, you know, lowering or eliminating overdraft fees, NSF. You have seen progress here. I think some of that is attributable to, you know, startups that were competing for certain segments of their customers. On the flip side, you look at what Chase is doing, you know, they are charging money for that account because it is not free to uh, open and service a checking account. And uh, without you know certain fee income and relatively little interchange income, you know, Chase is a business and they want to make money somewhere. Well, I think you're, you're striking at one of the things I think is one of the biggest problems, particularly in U.S. financial services, the concept of a free checking account. 
right? Because it is not free. We're just hiding what the true pricing is. Like, it has to come somewhere else. And consumers have been conditioned Mm -hmm. that it should be free. You know, the adage of if you don't, aren't paying for the product, you are the product, Mm -hmm. right? And I think free in financial services is done so much damage in that regard. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's right. I mean, I... uh uh, when I moved to the Netherlands and went to open my bank account, I was like, "Wait, what? I have to pay eight euro? <laughs> I have to pay eight euros a month for this?" Um, but it reflects, you know, that probably not even covers the entire cost of offering that product, particularly given that you know where I bank uh, doesn't actually do lending. You know, it's a neo bank, and interchange is much much lower in the EU and specifically in the Netherlands than it is in the US. So yeah, I mean, breaking that habit uh, for a American consumers, I think is borderline impossible. I mean, that and like credit card rewards, right? Some, you know, some of the stuff happening right now around, you know, so-called Durban 2.0 and there's some other debit routing related stuff. It's, you know, consumers are addicted to their reward points. Well, I mean, you know, interchange, one of my favorite topics to go after is, you know, I'm curious your transition, you know, to the EU where, you know, interchange is relatively non-existent existent and mm-hmm. also the use of credit cards you know mm-hmm. it's dramatically mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. was there like this you know, psychosis like this disconnect in terms of your american brain moving to the eu uh i mean i went through a transition phase because at least i was in london for a year which is kind of actually somewhere in between somewhere in between you know you do still have uh co-branded rewards cards people use credit um no but it, it i mean it was an adaptation i mean i like to joke that you know, when I first started visiting the Netherlands, you know, you go to the grocery store, they do not accept Visa or MasterCard. They use sister networks. Uh, I want to say it's Visa Plus and then Maestro. And the interchange, I think, is a flat two cents a swipe. So there is no interchange business model to be had there. Um, you know, I guess as a rational consumer, you look at it and you hope that that's reflected in lower prices on the product that you're buying because the merchant doesn't have to mark everything up to accommodate the swipe fee merchant discount rate. Well, in shows pull on this, we're, you know, we're addicted to rewards. I want to say it's the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta had published this, that most consumers actually lose out on rewards programs because if you're spending on, and I want to say the breaking point was like, if you make less than $115,000 a year, the amount you will overspend thinking you're getting rewards yeah. relative to the value you get from the rewards, right? Because it's all some value that's off in the future, you know, that you're just never going to capitalize on it. And so it's interesting in this Durban 2.0 to read some of the marketings. Oh, they're coming for your rewards, right? As if the government's trying to take it away from you. And the reality is you probably weren't getting those things in the first place. And also uh, there are these implicit cross-subsidies from lower income people to upper income people, right? If you're using your Amex Platinum or your Chase Sapphire Reserve, uh, which is charging the merchant a higher interchange rate versus a lower income consumer who might be using debit card, card, um, but, you know, everyone presumably is paying the same price. So you're implicitly seeing this transfer of wealth from lower income, lower spending consumers to upper income consumers that have a more uh, premium credit card. Premium credit 
credit card spending more, right? So the bulk of what they're doing in terms of the piece of the pie they're taking is disproportionate. Exactly. Yeah. So do you think interchange ultimately goes away and is it because of Durban 2.0? I mean, it's proven surprisingly durable. You know, if you talk to technologists and then particularly people in the sort of crypto Bitcoin maxi world, you know, the argument they make is that the logical endpoint is that payments become ubiquitous, instant, and either free or nearly free. But we're actually not seeing that progress happen in the traditional payment networks. You haven't seen uh, rates lower due to competition, Visa, MasterCard. And actually the opposite, you've seen rate hikes in certain geographies. So on the one hand, you know, you would like to believe that progress would lead us in, in the direction that some of these crypto people seem to think it will. On the other hand, it's not just the technology, right? Uh, it's the uh, who has pricing power and enough control of the market to you know, drive the outcome that's beneficial to them. And historically, that's been Visa and MasterCard. So I don't think it's going to be a legislated change. It's, I think it's the ubiquity of things like Apple Pay. Mm-hmm. and Amazon checkout and like when Starbucks finally decides to make me CEO because of the amount of money the first thing I'm going to do is change the Starbucks wallet into a point of sale yeah like piece a mechanism and I've become addicted I know you've been a long fan of Apple Pay yeah. but I find myself like it finally have crossed a, crossed the threshold that it's no longer a novelty it is actually my go-to mm-hmm. spending source and so at what point do they say oh wait a second I don't need to just be a front end to the cards, right? Like, I can actually own the yeah. whole thing. But I think that's a really interesting argument and, in, in, you know, potentially not just for Apple and Apple Pay. You know, obviously Apple has a significant advantage in that it owns the hardware layer as well as, like, the operating system software layer, and that gives it uh, a lot of control and a lot of reach, a lot of distribution. Um, but the idea of creating new, you know, closed-loop or like semi-closed loop networks that functionally compete with incumbent Visa MasterCard um, may be the, the most likely way that you see competition increase and potentially pricing come down. And I think another good example is what Block is doing with its sort of Square and Cash App ecosystem. And you've seen slow and steady progress of using Cash App as a payment mechanism, first only at merchants that used Square. And now more broadly, I want to say they partnered with Adyen to allow uh, Cash App users to to pay um, using the app. Yeah, and I think this growth in wallets, wallets have been hyped for so long, and we can you know, pick on like the super apps, but I think this idea that we're all, we've all gotten used to now having multiple wallets. There's not one wallet to rule them all, but I'm willing to store value in lots of little places that provide value to me. And I think that's part of what's going to drive the interchange race down is you don't need to compete with Visa or MasterCard head to head. It's this idea of, I'm going to start loading value in different places, right? And I'm going to get value for having loaded the value in different places. I mean, my thesis is that the 
entities that are going to be most able to execute that strategy are the ones that are high touch, high frequency. So your Starbucks example is, is a perfect one. And the ones that create an incentive structure that's tied to it. Again, Starbucks is a great example where, okay, you know you're going to go there. How many times do you go a week, Jason? You don't want to know. Is it more than once a day? Sometimes. <laughs> Most times. Yes. Uh, okay, so you're, you're you're in Starbucks ten you know ten times a week, spending I don't even want to know how much. Let's call it five bucks a pop. You know, but if you're doing that from the wallet that you've preloaded via an account to account transfer ACH and sort of low cost funding mechanism, and then Starbucks is rewarding you for paying that way by giving you whatever a free latte once every ten drinks, like they've created. Uh, incentive structure where at the end of the day they're still saving money on payment processing. They're saving a ton of money. They're driving increased behavior, right? Because given the choice between running back to the office or popping into Starbucks, having a coffee and working for two hours, guess what I do? Right. And yes, I do have a lot of star rewards. Uh, so it's, it's your default uh, office away from office as well. It is the office away from office. But, you know, it goes back to, I think, Part of this trend is, I think this next wave is not going to be the rise of the fintech player. It's going to be the rise of the commerce player that is becoming more fintech focused in what they do. You know, Walmart is obviously making big moves there. Amazon has already been a player there. But this idea of embedding, you know, the financial service layer into other behaviors mm -hmm. is, I think, what this next wave is going to look like. Yeah, I mean, why do I open my banking app? You know, it's usually to check my balance and see if I have any money. Um, but that's not uh, that's not fulfilling a need, right? Fulfilling a need is I need to buy this purchase at Amazon. I need to order Uber Eats. And so moving the uh, financial experience from inside my Chase app or my Bunk app and putting those capabilities where I'm actually trying to execute some kind of transaction, uh, I think is, is the direction that things are slowly moving. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the evolution of money 2020. Does this begin to look more like a commerce conference and less of a financial service conference, you know, as that evolution takes place? That would be really interesting. I mean, you imagine, you know, some combo Walmart one uh, exhibitor or contingent of people. Uh, I would be surprised if people from Amazon aren't here. Oh, they're always here, of yeah, course. Yeah, they're, they're somewhere. Um, but, you know, moving more center stage and having that sort of driving some of the dialogue and discussion. Less the periphery, yeah. more yeah. actually the main dialogue. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. Well, I can see it. Yeah. Well, let's see five years from now if that thesis holds up. But thanks for taking time on an early Money 2020 morning to catch up on all things FinTech. Anytime. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. 
These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Introduce yourself. Okay, first of all, thank you, JP, for having me here. Uh, I'm Nick Chandy, CEO and co-founder of Forward AI. Okay, Forward AI. So what problem are you solving? We, uh, we, we are a technology company and we plug into all major accounting systems. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem we are trying to solve is today it's very difficult for small businesses to share their accounting data or business data right. with the banks, lenders, right. or other fintech players right. to get better products or services from them. Yeah. And we are trying to connect them in an easy way so that it's making it easier for them to share their data with the bank. Right. Um, so why did you decide to tackle this problem? This come from a personal experience? Uh, yes, uh, the genesis was uh, during this pandemic. Um, what happened, you know, we had a successful exit in 2019. And uh, let me step back a little bit. Uh, I spent uh, all of my adult life, I would say, you know, working with accountants and bookkeepers. And we built a, one of the largest IT consulting company in Canada that was providing services to accountants. So we had a very deep understanding how these accounting systems work. And in fact, we built one of uh, one accounting system similar to QuickBooks Online and uh, that where we had more than 40,000 small businesses using it. So we knew the domain very deeply. And we, after that, uh, after selling that business in 2019, we were looking for what, what to do. And uh, during pandemic, I happened to work with uh, many small businesses, hundreds of them, uh, with their PPP loan applications. And But few of our clients, they needed help more than that. And we tried to get them help from the banks and other lenders. And we found it was very difficult uh, to get help that time. Uh, obviously, some was due to market conditions. But otherwise, we, we saw the banks were still looking for three years of historical data and business projections. And, you know, because they want to see that predictable revenue stream, right? But, but the reality is uh, most businesses, they don't have business plans, right? Even if they do have it, it's meaningless for the next three years, right? So, yeah, they were still looking for credit score or those kind of things. And what we saw, we worked with a, a fintech and we saw they, they had direct connections to accounting systems and they were lending all the time. So they were able to help few of our clients. And that's, that made us thinking, okay, how we can leverage the knowledge we had, experience we had, building these accounting systems, integrating with them, and how do we bring on a global scale? So we took our knowledge, we re-engineered our code, what we knew before, and we provided 
our solution is an API. So today we connect with all major accounting systems that are being used in the North American market. We can pull data from them, we can push data from them. So it's a bi-directional data flow and it's all happening through a single API. It's very easy to share data. The way banks or lenders, they request access to our data is they request inside the main customer journey. So uh, it's a consumer permission data access. So anytime data is shared, bank will get full access to the data, but they also get an opportunity here. Uh, what we do once we get the data, we clean and we standardize it. And we also provide, uh, we, we predict how the cash flow of the business is gonna look like tomorrow, next week, or in six months. So that cash flow forecasting has been very popular among small businesses as well as lenders, what we noticed that. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So mm. that has two different use cases, right? One is for the small business themselves. It can mm. be helpful because, as you said, many of them don't really have a cash flow forecast or really yeah. understand what that yeah. looks like. Mm -hmm. um, it's really just cash-based accounting. Mm -hmm. um, are, are the lenders using that or do they have their own model it's, it's it's i could i can imagine a lot of banks saying um no you know we, we don't trust your forecast so, so we're going to do our own modeling we yeah so we are working with the one of the largest bank in canada and they are currently going through a poc and they are introducing our they plan to introduce our cash flow forecasting to their clients and they are doing the testing and modeling and everything because the, uh, the way our technology works is we can provide cash flow forecasting as an API or also as a white label platform in case they want to offer, you know, uh, with the bank branding, bank logo theme and everything. So a small business will feel like they, they are on the bank website. But uh, because some banks, you know, they, have, uh, they don't have access to developers. For them, that's a great solution. But if you have access to developers, then then obviously integrating through API is the best one. Why is it taking us so long to get here? You know, it, it, it is such a manual and, um, you know, paper-based uh, process today. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem, you know. It's a huge problem, and uh, that's, that's the, that still needs to be solved. We see their, you know, small businesses, you know, still when they they need to take on a new job or you are a restaurant and you need to add few tables and you apply and it's going to take days and weeks to get any, any decision from the bank, right? Yeah. And that doesn't help because you need money today and you, you don't rent a movie today on Friday night to watch it on Tuesday, right? Right, not so, anymore. Not anymore, right? Yeah. And we, we, have, we, are, we live in a demand-driven economy. We have Uber and everything, but... But uh, somehow the experience on the business side is still very, very poor. And I believe that's changing now, JP. Uh, what we have seen, we have seen a strong interest uh, from, uh, from lenders and banks, you know, many companies, you know, uh, they, they were still doing paper-based kind of thing, pile of PDFs, but they're looking at this kind of data, but that's changing. If you look at a company like C2FO or, or Soup Funding or, you know, or FinTech Automation, the PR that we recently announced about, you know, they, these companies are forward thinking and they're trying to bring real-time access to, to, the, to the banks and other players too. So talk about 
how that fits into banking as a service or, or fintech as a service. I mean, obviously, being API driven is a um, you know important precursor to that. But talk about what does that look like coming forward? Because that's different than just being the you know kind of provider in between the uh, small business and their banker, right? Because what, well, what will this enable? What, what this enable is uh, it can empower banks to provide proactive services to their clients because think about, about a day when the data shows up on the dashboard of bank staff and they can do a lot of things. They can see, uh, first of all, you know, they can see immediately which businesses are going to qualify. Uh, they can automate certain certain part of the process. Uh, I guess more than 90% for sure, you, they can pre-approve those businesses. They can do other things like what, what we know that a small business, most of the time they have multiple financial relationship. They might have a bank account with one of the major bank, maybe had dealing with community bank, might be using Stripe, right? And uh, all this kind of data is visible in the accounting system. So it's possible today a banker to pick up the phone and see that Nick has 100K sitting with the other bank, a competitor, and maybe it's time to talk to them and asking them to open a saving account with you on the better terms. Those are the kind of things. They can see, predict which clients are growing and at what rate, and they in the accounting data, they can see that their marketing is going up, but at the same time, their sales is also going up. So they'll be able to identify those kind of opportunity and they can automate it. And I believe that's a way better way to than sending a spam email to millions of businesses and asking Same message them to, to everybody. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously both pieces are important, right? The small business, which gets the data and then the banks. But kind of through your business model and your sales model, where are you focused more on enabling the small business to have this data, or is it more about giving the bank those opportunities that you talked about? Uh, currently, we are opening this opportunity for the banks and okay. lenders. That's where the focus has been. Okay. Uh, and because it's very, very hard, you know, multiple massive issues in getting funds today and user experience is poor. A lot of small businesses, they still go for expensive solutions like merchant cash advance. That's a very, very expensive solution. But, you know, they make mistakes because they are, the fact is 74% of small businesses, they don't have any kind of formal financial education. They never went to school and studied accounting or finance. Right? And, they, and they didn't start a business to become a CFO. For sure, yeah. They, they are in the business of making those beautiful cupcakes, not in checking their books. <laughs> That's right. the thing they don't enjoy, right? And uh, But despite all this innovation in the space, the trend has been slow, but I think we are going to see the effect because the rock has been thrown and, and the ripple effect will be happening in the, in the next few years. I, I believe, based on my conversation with banks and lenders, in the next five, 10 years, building integrations with accounting or commerce platform payment systems, it will be ubiquitous. We'll see it everywhere. That's where the trend has been. And I know some some FIs, they might ignore it, but they will become dinosaurs of our industry. Well, I, I was talking about this with somebody the other day. I, 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 the ur case for me is kind of going back to 
the early 90s when we first started to digitize transactional data. Mm -hmm. And most banks really thought that was a cost savings opportunity. Oh, mm -hmm. great, now we don't have to print out paper statements and mail them out. Mm -hmm. But once you digitize that, you have a lot of data and you mm -hmm. have a lot of opportunity mm -hmm. to use that data for different things. And that's kind of where we are today with the, the space that you're working in, where, um, you know, I many of these small businesses also only um, even use any kind of accounting platform because their bank asked them to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, or yeah. or at least produce any kind of reports because their bank asked them to. That's right. So it, it seems like there's an opportunity to uncover new use cases, you know, for both the bank and the mm -hmm. business customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, today if you look at the market, you know, today because more with the more and more digitization happening. Today, there is no reason for a small business to visit a bank, honestly. Their customers are moving, they're chipping away because of the embedded finance or other platforms like Shopify or Square or even uh, you know, QuickBooks, you know, these accounting platforms. They are also trying to become banks or they're at least offering services that are very similar to banks. Okay? So, what are the options for bank? You know, either they offer something that's more engaging so that they can upsell, cross-sell. It's, it's five times much cheaper to upsell or, or sell new product to existing customers than to a new one. Uh, and that's one option for them. Otherwise, other, they will have to go uh, to the platforms where the customers are, right? Uh, so I think that the technology today enable them to bring the customers back and look at the data, make decisions based on the data and, and filter out which are the best customers and help them at the right place and offer them uh, whatever they need. What are you finding in terms of demographics? Um, how big is the average customer that, that seems to be in the sweet spot for you? What kind of revenue or number of employees or any other characteristics that you've seen so far? Yeah, so from our uh, customer perspective, the bank or our, we call them partners, uh, enterprise partners who are integrating these, these. And we see for their small businesses, they have any sales between 1 million to 50 million. Those are the businesses that are connecting or that are using our technology to share data with mm -hmm. the bank. Company-wise, we are more than 60 plus uh, employees and uh, uh, we, we all three co-founders. We are based in Canada, but our team is globally distributed, uh, some in Canada, some in India and the USA as well. Yeah. And how about, so, so you're in proof of concept with one bank now, um, others in the pipeline. Is, is there a thought on um, what kinds of banks um, or where they're located or you know, their focus or anything that is a better fit for you? What we have seen is uh, based on the, it's companies near, we are only more than one and a half year old right now. And uh, we have clients in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. And we, big difference here is we, we are eating our own dog food here as well. The cash flow planning that I, sh I shared with you before, we also provide as a kind of service, free service to small businesses and, and accountants. And, they share the data with us so that we can perfect our models. And in return, they get a platform where they can see their cash flow, they can do scenario planning or those kind of things. And what we see that 
there's an interest in these markets more around that one. So that's where we have thousands of customers using that free platform. And uh, and I think... Um, and when you say customers, those being accounting... Accountants or, uh, yeah. or businesses. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and so not only is this available to those doing their books on their own through a QuickBooks or Xero or something like that, but also through the... Um, you know, accountant packages, right? That the, they use different software of that, right? Your system works with all of the above. We currently integrate with seventeen major accounting systems, like QuickBooks, Online, Zero, FreshBooks. Okay, uh, or, and those would be the ones I, I think of yeah. as being kind of self-managed, right? Yeah, yeah, self-managed, or what we have seen that once you go to mid-market, like Oracle NetSuite or Sage Intact, those kind of, then then you have a CFO kind of person, you know, who right. They they might be doing cash flow forecasting today uh, in an Excel sheet, um, you know that someone built based on a macro or template. Or some, I I talked to a CFO a few few weeks ago and she got an an Excel sheet. You know she was very sca- scared to change it because the macro that uh, previous CFO built. They were working flawlessly for her, and she didn't want to change. But wasn't uh, broken. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, no one wants a heart surgery unless you have to, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, looking forward a year or two. I mean, what are you most excited about? What are you most worried about as as you look forward into the economy and you know the stage of your business and and your 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 customers and future customers? We we believe it's still it's still early days, and when data is being shared seamlessly with others or uh, among different business platforms, today we see we see a lot of interest. Uh, you know, where companies, fintech companies, they also want to connect a commerce platform to the payment or accounting system. They are doing their all their own analytics or something. So I believe the trend will continue on that side where data will flow seamlessly from one business platform to another platform. And today we, we know on average a business use anywhere between 20 and 25 software packages. They might have something for accounting, for payroll, or for collections, or scheduling, marketing, sales, you know. And that's what you see when you look at their screen and how many tabs they have open, right? Right. Uh, and uh, today, that data sits in silo. It's very difficult to connect, you know, look at the, the let's say, Stripe account and, and Google AdWords account and, and see, you know, what's happening there, you know, whether they're spending money and whether the money is coming in too and look at QuickBooks as well. But I think that's going to change. The silo system, they're going to connect with each other, that's where we see. And it's gonna improve engagement, it's gonna improve the onboarding experiences. Today, onboarding sucks and it's just really bad. And I think yes. we, we need to meet what's expectations that's happening in the consumer space. And that, that's one of the reason I was reading a survey, I, be, I believe it was from US Bank or one bank, uh, that only 18% small businesses are happy with their bank. It means rest 82% uh, want, some, wants, want to see some improvement, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, part of the thing is uh, their 
outdated legacy technology stack, but uh, they are upgrading. But it, as we know, it's it's like moving a ship, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a huge disconnect because yeah. when you talk to the banks, that's really where most of them see the future is in that small business customer, mm -hmm. where they see their strengths based on those relationships, based on their balances. But the fact is the business is many years behind the consumer experience today. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, look, look at you know what what's happening on the I'm um, in on the payment side too. You know, today you order food, it got delivered to your home in 20 minutes, right? right. Grocery in some companies they are they're delivering 10 minutes today. But if I want to pay you and it's going to show up in three days, and if the weekend is then think about that, it's going to take even longer, right? So we, we need to see a lot of innovation on that side as well. And all these kind of things are causing cash flow problems. They need their working capital quickly so that they, they can invest into growth. And because they, that's where the, our key growth of the nation is coming from. Yeah. Anything else I uh, shouldn't have asked you that I didn't? I think uh, you covered almost everything, Great. and uh, they, they were all good questions. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, JP. Yeah. Great. Thank you. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.